This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Coin. Here at the Word of the Week, we don't concern ourselves overly much with measuring success. We created this podcast because we love fantasy, we love games, and we love learning random stuff about whatever strikes our fancy. But there are many touchstones against which a podcast's success can be measured. You know, if we wanted to. You could look at the ratings and reviews on services like iTunes. We could look at how many supporters we have providing voluntary funding on Patreon to keep this show on the air. But the acid test is just seeing how many people download and listen to our show. And in all of those respects, we're doing pretty well. And we'd like to take time out every once in a while to thank those of you who listen to the show and who leave us reviews and ratings. And especially those who give us a bit of money every month to keep this show on the air. Because even though we produce this show out of love, our hosting providers and the people who make our equipment don't do that stuff out of love. They do it for money. Now, money gets kind of a bad rap these days. You've probably heard how people bemoan the fact that money makes the world go round and that money is the root of all evil. And while that first observation is fair enough, metaphorically, and was simply an observation made in a song from the 1966 Tony Award-winning musical Cabaret with music by John Kander, lyrics by Fred Ebb, and book by Joe Masteroff, to be totally accurate, the musical was based on an earlier play by John Van Drutten called I Am a Camera, and the play was based on a novella called Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. All of those versions are set in Berlin in 1931, and tell the story of the relationship between an American writer and a cabaret dancer set against the backdrop of the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. The line merely observes that whether we like it or not, if you have money, you can pretty much acquire everything. And if you don't have money, everything is out of reach for you. Fair enough. But that other remark, the one about money being the root of all evil, that's actually a misquotation. It comes from the Bible, specifically the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, also known as 1 Timothy. See, the Apostle Paul wrote several letters of advice about good Christian living. Collectively, they are known as the pastoral epistles. Two were written to his disciple Timothy, an evangelist and a bishop of Ephesus. The third was written to a Christian worker in Crete named Titus. That's neither here nor there. What's important is that in chapter 6, verse 10, he explains that it is not money that is the root of all evil, it is the love of money. Those who don't seek to gain much beyond their means can be content with what they have, but those who desire to become rich and hoard wealth, those people are corrupt. And we agree with that sentiment. Which is why we're saying thank you for your support. Because we are grateful for it, and because we don't do this out of love of money. We do it out of love for the podcast. So why do we bring all of that up? Well, mainly because we needed an introduction that would let us toss around a few important metaphors and connect them to money. Did you catch them? Right there in the first paragraph. We mentioned touchstones and acid tests. And then we started talking about money. Now, you've probably heard of touchstones in exactly the context we used it. It's something you can use to measure something else. It's something you measure quality against. 
and you've probably heard of acid tests, too, in exactly the way we used it. It's a sort of final test. Again, it's a way to measure quality. But what you may not know is that both of those phrases are actually thousands of years old, and they have to do with money. Very specifically, they have much to do with coins. Coins made of precious metals like gold and silver. And speaking of things that get a bad rap, metals like electrum. If you're a gamer of any stripe, you recognize those metals as three of the five standard types of coins that heroic adventurers might have in their pockets in any fantasy tabletop game. And if you're particularly active in the gaming community and have been around for an edition or two of the most popular games, you're probably familiar with the ire that Electrum specifically receives and with its on-again, off-again relationship with Dungeons & Dragons. Maybe you've even argued that the inclusion of a silly alloy of gold and silver as a halfway currency between the two is silly, unnecessary, or unrealistic. Though, if you're a listener to this show... We've already disabused you of that particular argument at least once. And while we're going to have to revisit it briefly today, we're also going to put it in the larger context of the history of money. Because far from being evil, money was pretty much instrumental in allowing civilization to grow and prosper on Earth. So if there was no money, there'd be no role-playing games. And then we'll point out that the real ridiculous thing is that everyone in the D&D universe is running around with any money at all. First, let's talk about money. What is it and why was it invented? Because its invention was really sort of inevitable once we discovered it was easier to grow food than to chase it around the landscape. See, around 10,000 years ago, or maybe more, the various tribes of humans made an interesting discovery. Fighting for everything you needed was kind of a pain. So let's say your tribe has lots of flint in your land. You can make arrowheads and spear points. And so you can hunt the local game pretty readily. But what you don't have access to is a good water source. You notice, of course, that there's a decent lake nearby. But there's a tribe already living on the shore of that lake. They have plenty of water. But they don't have much meat. Now, you could go to war with them, kill them and take their water. But that's dangerous. They're going to manage to kill some of your tribesmen whether you like it or not. That's inevitable. And while you're fighting with the other tribe, you're not hunting for food. And even if you do win, because you have all the good arrowheads and spear tips, you're in danger of some other tribe deciding they want something you have, and now you have twice as much territory to defend. Wouldn't it be easier if you just gave that other tribe some of your arrows and spears and meat, and they gave you some water? Look, this seems obvious today, but you have to understand that in human prehistory, that was a pretty big realization, and it changed everything, because resources weren't evenly distributed around the world, and because skills weren't easily distributed, it was easier and more efficient if everyone exchanged the things they had a lot of for the things they didn't have much of. To a point, of course. And then, when people settled down and stopped moving around and started farming and domesticating animals, that idea, trading stuff, became big. So, we see in places like Mesopotamia that by the 8th century BCE, individuals and groups were exchanging herds of domesticated animals and piles of grain with each other. Today, we call this system the barter system. I have something you want. 
you have something I want, so we agree to trade those things and both walk away happy. Well, sort of. See, the barter system had some serious limitations. First, it meant that every time you needed, say, a clay pot or a bag of figs, you had to drive a herd of cattle or fill up a bunch of sacks full of grain and carry them to the local market. Second, people's needs varied. I, the fig gatherer or the potter, might not be able to care for a bunch of cattle. I might not need a bunch of grain. I might have plenty. I might need something else, like some metal tools. Third, lots of the goods were perishable or destructible. Figs and grains, for example, spoil eventually. And pretty quickly compared to clay pots and bronze tools. So if I was a fig gatherer, I'd better spend those figs quickly because they wouldn't last forever. In the cities of Uruk and Ur in Mesopotamia, the people there took the first steps towards fixing the barter system. See, grain had become pretty much the standard thing. Everyone needed a steady supply of the stuff. It was a staple. So the Sumerians in Uruk and Ur constructed big communal granaries to store grain. A farmer could bring their grain to the granary and store it there, and the people operating the granary would make a little note of how many sacks full of grain the farmer had given them. They'd give the farmer a bunch of tokens that the farmer could bring back to get his grain back whenever he wanted it. And so could anyone else. The farmer could give the token to, say, the fig merchant or the potter in trade for figs or pots, and the merchant could bring that token to the granary and get the grain it represented. The merchant could even give the token to someone else to pay for something else. And voila, you have solved a bunch of problems with barter, especially the carrying around of sacks full of grain, as long as everyone agreed that grain was worth trading for. And that's what money is. Economists today define money as anything that is generally accepted as payment for goods, services, or the payment of debts. And it serves four basic purposes. First, it's a medium of exchange. That is, it allows people to move value around between them. Second, it serves as a unit of account. That is, it provides a way to measure the value of any good and therefore it provides an easy way to assess the worth of anything compared to anything else. So, if a goat is worth 10 grain tokens and a clay pot is worth 2 grain tokens, a goat is worth 5 clay pots. Third provides a store of value, that is, it doesn't go bad. I can hold that token until I actually need grain. And fourth, and this is a more modern issue, it also provides a standard of deferred payment. That is, it is a way of measuring debt. If you give me a pot today, and I agree to pay you tomorrow after I use the pot to bring my figs to market, I can give you two grain tokens the next day and we're square. Now. Those grain tokens were an example of a specific type of money called representative money. By the way, those tokens were called shekels. It comes from a Semitic word that means weight because each one represented a specific weight of barley or other stored grain. And that's what representative money is. The token, the shekel, has no real value, but it represents something that does have real value. And it can be exchanged for that value. The whole shekels for grain thing worked reasonably well, but it too had some limitations. For one thing, it was only valuable if you could actually go down to the granary in Ur and get your grain. 
For another, if anything happened to the grain, the shekels lost their value. And what did you do if, say, half the grain got eaten by grain weevils, whose shekels were still good? What you needed was some kind of money that was valuable in and of itself, and one that wasn't based on anything that could go bad or get ruined. So let's fast forward to the 7th century BCE and visit the kingdom of Lydia. Now, Lydia had a lot going for it at that time. It was located in Asia Minor, between the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea in what we now call Turkey. The land was fertile, owing to the Hermas and Caister rivers. It was located smack dab in between Asia and Europe. Oh, and it had precious metal deposits in abundance. Especially a particularly prized metal called white gold. Otherwise known as... Electrum. They also made fine textiles and leather goods. Now the thing is, our knowledge of Lydian history and culture is pretty spotty. They had their own language in the Indo-European family and even had an alphabet, but most of their writings didn't survive to the modern day. So we've never been able to fully decipher the Lydian language. But we do know they were a trade kingdom of surpassing wealth because of their position along pretty much every trade route worth trading along. Depending on which side you were standing on, they were the gateway to Europe or the gateway to Asia. And if they were going to capitalize on the situation, they needed a way to standardize the exchange of goods and services and wealth. By this point, other societies had come to prize various metals like gold, silver, copper, and tin. Tin and copper could be used to make bronze, which was important enough, and gold was extremely malleable and highly passive. Malleable means it can easily be worked into lots of different shapes just by hitting it with things. Passive means that it doesn't react with, well, anything really. Gold doesn't tarnish or oxidize. It's pretty much impervious to everything, except hitting it with things. Gold is also really, really pretty. It's bright and shiny and yellow and never loses its sheen. And it's also widely distributed around the world, so eventually most societies on Earth discovered some gold and came to associate its beauty and imperviousness with the divine or with royalty. In places like Egypt and Mesopotamia, precious metals and especially gold were highly sought after, and bars of gold fetched a high price. Now, Lydia was thriving under the Mermnad dynasty. They came to power and unified the region from the city of Sardis around 680 BCE. Specifically, they were unified under their first king, Gyges, who has the dubious honor of being the first named tyrant king of anywhere identified in the Greek historical records. Good for him. But it was the last king of Lydia that we're concerned about, Croesus. He reigned from 560 BCE to 546 BCE, and he is credited with having this really neat idea. What if the Lydians took all their white gold out of the ground? and made it into little beads or baubles and used that as money? And what if they stamped it with a little hole to indicate how much the bead or bauble weighed? See, the problem with using gold as a currency, especially with trade becoming more sophisticated, is that you need to know exactly how much gold you're trading for. And so every time someone wanted to trade gold for something, the merchant had to weigh the gold on a scale, and the trader and the merchant had to agree on exactly how much gold there was and how much it was worth. 
If you think it takes time to run your debit card at the grocery store, or you've gotten frustrated because you're behind some old woman who is trying to pay for their groceries and hasn't gotten the memo that no one uses handwritten checks anymore, imagine if you had to wait for the clerk to weigh every coin you paid with. So Croesus decreed that they would standardize the weights for the chunks of electrum they were using. The chunks weren't always coins. They weren't always round. They didn't even come in standard shapes but they were weighed and engraved with a little symbol that told you exactly what the lump of electrum weighed. So all a merchant had to do was count them and check the symbols. And thus, the Lydians had the first true commodity money. Money whose worth is based on the thing the money is actually made of. And the first money was made of electrum. Though the Lydians did also make some coins of pure gold and silver. Well, pure-ish because it was hard to purify gold and silver at the time. Now, the most famous of the Lydian coins was the Lydian lion. It was stamped with the symbol of Croesus's father, Alietes. And there's actually some debate as to whether it was Croesus or Alietes who came up with the idea for coinage. Croesus is generally given the credit in the historical record, which is why we went with that explanation but it's actually more likely Alietes started making the coins, but they didn't become popular in Chalcrosus's time. And that's because the Lydian lion was just too expensive to be useful. A single lion was worth enough to buy an entire day's food for a family, so it wasn't useful for buying, say, a loaf of bread. It wasn't until smaller denomination coins became available, and there were enough of the coins in circulation, that they became really useful for trade. And even then, most people got by on barter for their daily life. They just didn't need to convert all of their useful stuff into a precious metal like electrum. Or gold. The idea of converting everything you own into coinage, by the way, has been suggested as one of the origins of the King Midas story. You know, the king who prayed to the gods to bless him with the ability to turn everything he touched to gold. And then he starved because you can't eat golden food, and no one mourned him because gold statues that used to be your daughter shed no tears? Well, it turns out, there was a King Midas in a neighboring kingdom of Phrygia. And one theory suggests that his golden touch actually referred to his policy of encouraging his subjects to conduct all of their trade with gold coins, and therefore to convert all of the goods in the kingdom to gold. Unfortunately, things turned sour for the Lydians, which you might suppose from the fact that Croesus was only in power for 26 years before he died of being on the losing end of an expansionist military campaign. See, Croesus was trying to push out the Lydian border, and because his kingdom was now using this commodity money, he was able to gather tax money easily and use it to finance his expansion. So the whole money thing worked out very well for Croesus, at least in terms of letting him finance his conquest, the actual conquest didn't work out so well. In 546 BCE, Croesus and his army met King Cyrus II of the Persians at Halys. Turns out King Cyrus wasn't too keen on the Lydian border being expanded through Persian lands. And after defeating Croesus's army and killing Croesus, Cyrus decided that what he was actually keen on was Lydia being inside the Persian border. And, once occupied by the Persians, things went bad for Lydia, and especially Sardis. In 498 BCE, the Ionians sacked Sardis as part of their war with the Persians, 
And then in 480 BCE, King Xerxes of Persia used Sardis as the launching point for his invasion in Greece. Then it got conquered by Alexander the Great during his conquest of pretty much everything. And then it was conquered by the Seleucids. The Romans claimed it. It rebelled against Rome, but that didn't take. And then an earthquake devastated the entire region. But what was important was that the Lydian idea of commodity money caught on. It spread into Persia, into the Indian subcontinent, and into Greece. And that is where we will pick up this story next week. To explore how gold and silver coins entered the picture, and to explain what touchstones really are, and what an acid test was really about, and to talk about what you do when your money system goes bad. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.